they've started to form what is called a PDF, the People's Defence Forces, where they have been ambushing um, and and counter-attacking military forces in some places quite effective, quite surprisingly effective. And that's because there have been defections from the military, police and military, who refuse to to slaughter unarmed civilians, have actually joined um, the resistance and started training people on how to fight back. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, my name is Frida Afari. I am an Iranian-American librarian, writer, and producer of the blog Iranian Progressives in Translation. On behalf of Internationalism from Below, Haymarket Books, and New Politics Journal, I would like to welcome you to today's panel on what is happening in Myanmar. Since February, a popular uprising has been in progress against a military coup in Myanmar. It has involved massive and sustained labor strikes, women in the forefront, and oppressed ethnic minorities such as the Rohingya actively participating in the revolt. Yet there has been so little discussion within the global left on the Myanmar uprising, its unique features, and why it matters globally. The combined might of the Myanmar capitalist state army, which promotes ethno-religious chauvinism and misogyny, and the important strategic role which Myanmar plays for various global powers, makes its military government hugely powerful. Authoritarian powers around the world are also learning from the coup for their own fascistic purposes. The struggle in Myanmar and similar struggles around the world cannot move forward without global grassroots solidarity to oppose the military government and to give voice to Myanmar women striking labor activists and ethnic minorities. Today, a panel of women will discuss three specific aspects of this momentous upheaval. The labor struggles, the feminist dynamic, and the role of ethnic minorities. The panelists will also give us ideas for international solidarity. Our panelists are Debbie Stossard, Yasmin Ula and Myra Dahgaipal. Debbie Stossard is an active promoter of human rights in Burma and the ASEAN region. During her 32-year career, she has worked as a journalist, community education consultant, governmental advisor, and trainer in Malaysia, Australia, and Thailand. In 1996, She founded the Alternative ASEAN Network on Burma, 
and was elected Secretary Gen General of the International Federation for Human Rights in 2013. She developed the first woman-specific human rights training program for Myanmar in 1997, an initiative which is ongoing and has supported many local and national young women leaders in Myanmar. Yasmin Ula is a Rohingya social justice activist who works on advocacy, media, and building alliances with young people from Myanmar. She was born in the northern Rakhine state of Myanmar. Her family led, fled to Thailand in 1995 when she was a child, and she remained a stateless refugee until moving to Canada in 2011. Yasmin served as the president of the Rohingya Human Rights Network, a nonprofit group led by activists across Canada advocating and raising public awareness of the Rohingya genocide. She has worked on various projects such as the Time to Act Rohingya Voices exhibition with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, the Genocide Learning Tool with the Montreal Holocaust Museum, and the anthology, I Am a Rohingya, where she published her poetry. She's currently completing her undergraduate degree in political science. In, 2000, in 2021, she was named on the Feminist 100, the gender security project list of 100 women from the global south, working in foreign policy, peace building, law activism, and development. Sarada Gaipao is the Managing Director of the U.S. Campaign for Burma. She is a Karen human rights activist from Karen State in Eastern Burma. She was an internally displaced person and a refugee prior to resettling in the U.S. Myra worked as a human rights advocate at the United Nations with the Burma Fund UN office prior to taking on the managing director position at the U.S. Campaign for Burma. She, I'm sorry, prior to taking on the managing director position at the U.S. Campaign for Burma, she fulfilled the roles of campaign coordinator and policy advisor at U the U.S. Campaign for Burma. By seeking justice and accountability, Myra hopes one day to see a unified country at peace once the crimes against humanity and unchecked impunity in Burma are put to an end. Until that day, Myra will continue to promote and support the movement for freedom and a genuine democracy in Burma and advocates for aid and support for human rights and humanitarian needs. So we will start with a 45-minute conversation that I will have with Debbie, Yasmin, and Myra, and we'll then take questions from the audience. And you're welcome, uh, audience members are welcome to type your questions in the YouTube live chat box. So the first question is the following. February 1st military coup. Thousands have been arrested, imprisoned, and killed. Large sections of the working class, civil servants, and health sector workers have gone on general strike. Please tell us about the latest state of the struggle and the general strike, its participants, and how it has been able to sustain itself until now 
given both the military repression and the COVID pandemic? And I'd like to ask Debbie to start answering that question. Hi, um, thanks for having me. Um, I, I, there's a lot to say and I'm going to try and just focus on one aspect and let um, Myra and Yasmin uh, follow up. But I think if you look at the over, uh, overview overall, we've seen more than a thousand people killed and at least 10% were children uh, by, the, by a military violence since the coup. Um, over 8,000 people have been arrested and 6,637 uh, 6, are still in detention and there's been nearly 2,000 arrest warrants still pending. That means there are nearly 2,000 people, men, women, and in, including children, who are who are actually in hiding, trying to evade arrest. Uh, having worked uh, uh, in solidarity with Burma since 1988, so that's over 30 years, 33 years, um, it's the first time we've seen such a huge such huge numbers. Um, the last time we had uh, documentation of the number of political prisoners, um, this was in 19, uh, 1991, 30 years ago, and that was, now you can call it only 3,000 political prisoners. Um, so I think we, we have to um, be extremely concerned that um, this is happening at a time where COVID is rampant in the country and where places of detention, whether it's a jail, interrogation center, or even an IDP camp under control of the junta, are places where people are incredibly vulnerable um, to, because of the situation they've been put in. Um, it's also important to note that in the first six months since the coup, during the period February to July, there were 3,000 601 attacks on civilians or um, arm clashes that harmed civilians. And if we compare it with the corresponding period uh, last year, this is actually a 521% increase in these types of um, conflicts. And, and what we've seen is that the military junta has essentially transformed the entire country, whether you are in an ethnic area or in a Burman-dominated area, whether you're in rural or urban area, they've transformed the country into a war zone. And the country is essentially under attack from a brutal military dictatorship. Thank you, Debbie. And uh, Myra? Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Debbie, for uh, paving the, the way for me to uh, take on the next step when it comes to the ethnic minorities. So despite the violence perpetrated by the Burmese military, the people of Burma continue stand uh, resolutely against the rule. That is something that is very encouraging that we've seen throughout the country, not just central Burma, but across the country, including at the ethnic minority states. And so in each uh, ethnic minority states, we are also witnessing the worst of the Burmese military's violence and uh, crimes against humanity. For instance, in September 7th, um, a week ago, uh, the Burmese military used two farmers from Shan State as human shield. And that is something that we've also seen in Karen State that happens a lot these days, where 
uh, and also Karini State, the Eastern Burma, right above Karen State. You also see a lot of uh, armed clashes these days when the military also trying to send out their troops to come out to in their own way, saying that they are trying to search for the PDM uh, protesters and the PDF uh, forces who are hiding in the community. Whether their case, their claim is correct or not is one thing, but this is a way of their making, taking advantage of the situation and trying to uh, increase their militarization in the country, which literally taking us back to the number that Debbie gave us earlier, that is the whole reason why the increase has been, uh, uh, the increase of militarization has been happening in, in the ethnic states. And so, so far we have increased in the number of refugees and IDPs, while we already have more than at least um, eight, 80,000 IDP uh, refugees across Thailand Burma border where they've been there for at least 25 to 30 years. Since 1995, when I had to cross the border, became a refugee. And I'm here and they were they are still there, not being able to go home. And now the number is piling up. Civilians are not safe. I'm just giving you just a little bit of example, but this is this kind of brutality, this kind of abuses uh, that has been committed by the Burmese military is widespread and becomes more and more um, stronger. And that is why it is very important to uh, for the international community and everyone who listened to us tonight to know that the struggle right now is not just inside the central Burma, but it goes across the whole country and we just need to come together and making sure we work together and making sure we bring this military down, hold them accountable and bring about to an end to the impunity they've been enjoying for all these years. Thank you. Thank you, Myra. And I was wondering if any of you uh, could also add more details about the labor strikes. In other words, how have they been able to sustain themselves for so long, uh, given how widespread this, the general strike is? It's quite amazing. How have they been able to do it? I'm going to jump in before Yasmin. Um, um, firstly, I think uh, we need to understand that the um, the protests, the anti-coup protests that took place between February and April, February, March, April, um, uh, that that um, took place in 95% of all the townships in the country. That means basically nationwide protests, even in areas that were not controlled by the military, um, now have um, been transformed because the military started uh, using snipers, um, uh, rocket attacks, even rocket attacks in urban areas on local protesters. So what we've now seen this resistance transform into is what they call running strikes or flash strikes where, where people, instead of marching, are actually running. They're running, they're actually sprinting 
in these uh, lightning strikes, um, whether and graffiti, whether it's online, in some cases, people almost performing art, um, you know, stacking um, these Burmese dolls that don't tip over on the street in lieu of them. Um, and, um, but, but we've also seen um, people having seen family members assassinated or killed in front of them, now hardening their position instead of, um, uh, instead of peaceful resistance, nonviolent resistance, they've started to form what is called a PDF, the People's Defense Forces, where they have been ambushing um, and, and counter-attacking um, military forces in some places with a lot of quite effective, quite surprisingly effective. And that's because there have been defections from the military junta, police and military, who refuse to, to, to slaughter unarmed civilians, have actually joined um, the resistance and started training people and how to fight back. So um, in, uh, in May, we had the little town of Minda in Chin State, in the west of the country, being subjected to two weeks of siege, including helicopter attacks, and the local people held out for two weeks against um, an overpowering military. Myra referred to Kareni State in the um, in the east. Um, one. Basically, 30% of the entire state has been displaced by conflict since February. But somehow, they found ways and resources to try and keep each other alive um, while still being subjected to airstrikes. Um, and more recently, we've seen um, uh, massacres in, in towns in, the, in Sagang, in the northwest, such as Kani. Um, and people really have been um, quite... You know, we, there, there's so many of us outside watching in horror and fear and anxiety, but also feeling inspired that folks found ways to resist. And the the workers, um, the workers bore some of the worst brunt of it. Some of the earlier massacres happened um, in Langtaya, the industrial zone in uh, in east of Yangon, in Rangoon, sorry, west of Rangoon. Um, which which basically um, saw military troops coming to kill uh, migrant basically workers. A lot of them were internal migrants from different parts of the country, and actually all the industrial zones in the country have been militarized. They're basically a military zone where people have to pass through checkpoints. So over a hundred. 1,000, even up to 150,000 workers, factory workers, have actually left um, their work because of this oppression. So we, we've seen that um, this movement has been very intersectional, has been very diverse, and, and work, work, workers are struggling, resisting alongside women, alongside students, alongside former uh, police, alongside um, uh, civil servants. Many of them who've actually been kicked out of their homes because these are not, these are government quarters that they live in with their families. They've been kicked out of their accommodation and lost all set, all sources of livelihood simply because they spoke out.
Thank you. Uh, Yasmin, is there anything you would like to add here about the labor struggle and the general opposition before I go to the next question? Um, the only thing I would like to add is, uh, first of all, I, I want to um, thank the organizer, you know, for inviting me. But also, I want to also acknowledge that um, I'm speaking to you all from an unceded territory um, of um, the Semiyamo, the Katsi, the Coquitlam, the Kwantlen, the Kakate, and the Tuasin First Nations. Um, I think it is extremely important that I acknowledge that, you know, this this territory is unceded because it was stolen from the indigenous people of Canada. Now, the only thing I would like to add is that um, it seems really, really um, almost miraculous that, that people have been able to hold on for so long um, for the past seven, eight months. The thing about this entire um resistance movement is that it, it actually did not start on February 1st. It had long been, it had long begun, you know, prior to this. And Mamera and um, Debbie would, are well aware of this. Um, Mamera specifically because the Karen people have, have been, you know, in the movement and resisting against the, the Tatmadar for the past 70 plus years. The same, um, you know, can be said about Rohingya people. And now I, I want I want us to further look into the, you know, the, the defining of what resistance looks like. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, a general strike or a labor movement, which is wonderful, wonderful, you know, movement that came out of um, this effort of actually trying to uh, completely annihilate or completely um, get rid uh, of the Tatmada or, or their ideologies from, from Myanmar political landscape. But the, the fact, the very fact that we continue to exist to this day as Karen people, as Rohingya people, as Kareni, as various different groups of people who have been heavily marginalized by the system that was created on inequalities, that alone is enough of a resistance. Um, and I think I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the fact that people survive to this day is already a testament to how strong and how wonderful, how resilient our people are all over Myanmar. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin. So um, I'm going to go on to the next question. Women have been in the forefront of the uprising. They have also explicitly challenged misogyny and the second-class status of women in Burmese society. Please tell us about the feminist demands that women are raising and how these demands are being received within the movement as a whole. So, Maya, would you like to start? Thank you. Um, well, how many women in Burma have been demanding our rights to be a part of the solution, to be a part of the decision-making uh, group, that is like the most important thing we wanted to be a part of. We've been demanding for so long because women have been leaders in the community, in the churches, in pretty much everywhere, as well as in political spaces, as well as in some economic spaces. But then when it comes to decision making in Burma, we are still lacking. And so if you if we're comparing the situation right now with well the military junta and the NUG 
Probably, yes, we get to see the adding number of women. But the question is how much these ladies will be having their strong voice in the parliament is my I'm still I'm still concerned, honestly. Uh, Debbie will have more uh, insight because she is she lives and breathes it. And I really admire her uh, contributing to our younger lady, our, our generations for like how many groups. I don't even know how to count how many hundreds. But I just wanted to also uh, remind us that it's not just the, the military side. It's coming to our ethnic minority side. We also have our older leader who are very conservative. I'm sorry, leaders, if you are listening, this is my point of view and my feeling that even I myself having to live through that, to a certain extent, I was given some level of work as if I was trusted very nicely. But then when it comes to decision making and I sit in the in the meeting and I was just had to listen as an attendee. So. That is what we're still having in Burma. And with that, I'll, uh, I'll lead it on to um, Debbie. I'm going to say yes, we should speak first because um, I might end up taking up too much space here. So over to Yasmin first. Okay, Yasmin, please. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Um, I think it's really, really important that uh, we look at the kind of impunity that the Myanmar military have enjoyed for the past you know, 70 years, it always involve um, violating two things, the body autonomy of women and marginalized community, especially um, two-spirited people or, or people from LGBTQ plus communities. Um, the other thing is to violate the land rights. So there is a huge connection and, and there was actually a, um, uh, a really wonderful section that was written in, in the book Border and Rule um, that highlighted the American, you know, terrorization of or, or dispossession of the land of indigenous um, of indigenous people or, or Native Americans um, that is in really, really close connection to uh, how crimes and uh, violations um, that are gendered would happen and take place against Native American women. And this is exact same, um, if not, you know, very, very similar. Um, it, it, the, the things that happen to Rohingya women, to Karen women, to Shan women, to all the ethnic minority groups that exist in, in Myanmar um, happen to be completely and, and very, very tightly tied to the land dispossession or the resource extraction or, you know, the, the, the displacement, um, forced displacement of people. And it's got to do with the ways the Myanmar military is structured as an organization. It is built upon misogyny and, and patriarchal practices. It has picked up one of the worst practices that, you know, various different ethnic minorities or even the, the majority, the, the Bama people have um, against women for a very long time. And women in this movement have made it extremely clear that they're done with the taboos. Um, some of the women have actually, you know, if, if, if um, we go back a little bit in time, right after, you know, the, the protests start to break out all across the country, there was a Sarong revolution, which was using the lower garment of women's, um, you know, uh, uh, 
um, dress code or like the, the traditional um, ways of dressing in, in Myanmar, using that piece of garment to actually put barriers around, you know, the protesting areas or um, to actually barricade and, and stop the Myanmar military from entering certain areas to go and arrest or kill or, you know, do basically create more violence around around the country. And that has been extremely successful, but also very, very monumental because Myanmar is such a conservative society that even the lower garment of women is seen to be degrading to men, that men cannot, you know, pass through or, or go under the women's lower garment because apparently it has something to do with, you know, um, uh, taking away the sacredness of men. And it it had come in so, so handy in this case that the military would not, because they're so superstitious, that they would not go under it and they would actually have to stop the, the, the tank or the cars that they were driving, bringing people in to like stomp on other, you know, stomp on the, the protesters, they actually had to go and, and really like just carefully untie it from the poles or like remove it from the street. And a lot of protesters, men, women alike, actually went underneath it to actually stay and, you know, seek safety from that. So that's that's a really, um, you know, it, it's a really, really wonderful way to, to, un- to underline how creative Myanmar people have been and, and how resilient we are and how much we now understand and have been I think the the work have been have been ongoing and it's a progress um, that we are seeing that people have had this conversation prior to this, but they're using this as a moment to seize the opportunity to actually show it to the world that we're actually trying to change something much, much deeper than just, you know, let's get rid of the military because they're, you know, taking away things from us. But actually, let's take away their ideologies. Let's let's take away their power to begin with. And so um, this is this is why it's such an important uh it's it's such an important moment for us to actually acknowledge their their contributions because we only see the flashy um you know different occurrence during the protest but actual work is being done behind the scene for years on end and Mamera and Debbie has been doing like have been both have been phenomenal at actually training women helping women and and actually mentoring them like both of these women are incredible source of power for a lot of our sisters in in Myanmar but at the same time like they're also doing the hard work they're running around teaching people actually trying to break the taboos um I'm so, so happy to, you know, even though this is like a tragic, tragic um, thing that's happening to our country, but I got to know so many wonderful and, and really, really fierce women in this movement that have not given up and they will not give up. So I think it would be an incredible um, way forward for us to actually hold them up high as as much as we can, especially those um, who have put themselves um you know, out there and became part of the NUG. Uh, very, very few progressive feminist women have actually made their way into the status quo, um, even, even though it's a parallel government. It's, it's actually our duty to support them, to be able to do the work, to be able to uplift their voice even further so that they can bring in more people and, and tip the scale a little bit more so that we can get rid of all these um challenges that women would have to face so that the women 
in the generations to come won't have to go through what we are going through right now. Back to you, Debbie. <laughs> well, um, yeah, the NUG, the National Unity Government, was formed in April by um, MPs elected in the um, November 2020 election, as well uh, in partnership with ethnic leaders and a broad range of stakeholders. And what was interesting was that the demand made by women's movements from Burma, Burma, Myanmar, um, for many decades that there should be a minimum of 30% representation um, was realized because the NUG cabinet is 30% women um, and the uh, Minister for Human Rights is Aung Min, is the is, a, is an out gay man. So it's, I think, the first time in, in the history of the country we've had so many women in cabinet and an out gay person um, in the cabinet of a government. This is uh, basically um, a government um, formed in, in parallel and in response to the military coup. But before we even go there, we need to understand, as Yasmin and Mara have already said, women have been at the forefront of the struggle against impunity. Um, and they broke a lot of taboos by addressing, raising and addressing head on the question of gender and sexual violence perpetrated by the military targeting minority women. So, sorry, ethnic nationality women. So, um, and they've they've uh, spoken publicly at the UN level on this, and have in themselves faced reprisals. But um, uh, and and also in the the peace process, when the military was negotiating ceasefires with different ethnic armed organizations, is the women activists who actually um, pushed for international standards for uh, reparations, for um, protection of civilians, for um, uh, commitments not to expose, to not to subject women to further violence. But um, um, women in the, in the feminists in the movement, the feminist movement was seen not just by the military and ethnic armed organizations, but even by some international stakeholders as spoilers of the peace process because, because they kept talking about transitional justice and civilian protection. Now, what's happened is a general political realization that they need, that the rest of the movement needs to grapple with impunity. And this is why the National Unity Government, the NUG, actually acknowledged the authority of the International Criminal Court, the ICC over the atrocity crimes, the war crimes and crimes against humanity that have been taking place in the country. So I think, you know, a lot of those shifts came from uh, women who, some women who didn't have much access to formal education because they came from marginalized communities, but they learned about, they learned and discussed the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security. They learned about all the international conventions and frameworks and started challenging and speaking out and trying to enter all these new spaces. So, you know, the, 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 the reality is that um, this movement now that is very visible has its roots and, and foundations on labor activists, 
and women on feminists who have been working for decades all this time, even when they were subjected to harassment and undermining in their own communities for being courageous enough to speak up. So for me, full disclosure, I'm not from Burma. I'm a Malaysian. But as a feminist, what I could do as an outsider that was needed very often by male leaders in the movement was to push and push and be the bad cop in this picture. And what has happened also is that that men either, male leaders realized that in order for their legitimacy to be maintained, they needed to not block women's voices, especially in international advocacy. Some men actually became genuine allies. So I think this is something that is also part of that social transformation. When we're talking about this revolution, we're not talking about, as as Yasmin Mara has said, we're not talking about a revolution to overthrow a military junta. It's a revolution for social and political transformation of the country, of the society, of making sure that democracy in itself doesn't just mean electoral democracy and a democracy of numbers, but a democracy of inclusion. And this is where the struggle is. Myra's already spoken about being there, being allowed to do the work, being allowed to sit at the table, but not necessarily being heard. And I think this is where um, in our international allies and international movements need to ensure that voices of feminists from the ground in Burma, voices like Myra's and Yasmin's and the countless sisters that we work with resonate and are heard and are amplified by our international sisters. Thank you so much. That was really powerful. I appreciate what all of you had to say. And it's inspiring for women in other parts of the world as well. Um, So I'm going to go to the next question, uh, which some of you have touched on already, but this is going to delve into it a bit deeper. So Myanmar is a multi-ethnic country. The military known as the Tatmadaw is a cult-like institution with half a million troops, and it trains soldiers from a young age to see anyone other than the Bamar ethnic majority as criminal and subhuman. Many around the world know about the genocidal assault on the Rohingya Muslim population, but most do not know about the participation of the Rohingya and other oppressed ethnic minorities in the uprising. So please tell us about their participation and their vision of the kind of Myanmar that they want to live in. Is the opposition national unity government's call for a federalist alternative accepted by the majority of the Myanmar population? So Yasmin, would you like to go first? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. Um, I think it would be incredible. Uh, a really, really important moment to actually highlight the fact that, um, yes, um, Rohingya have been dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of effects of genocide um, and erasure, um, you know, after all these after all these years. But what um, what has been happening is that throughout all these time, apart from 
keeping ourselves um, through, you know, keeping ourselves alive um, as a form of resistance, we have been trying to figure out ways to also, you know, fight back in in our own respective um, power, whatever we whatever we are capable of doing. A lot of the work um, have been done again by women. Um, there had there have been now three different um, uh, judiciary process um, that is international, and one is at the um, International Court of Justice that takes you know even though it is um, a dispute between two different nation states um, brought by the Gambia, but the witnesses or the people that have been interviewed and the people who actually helped pushing this forward are women, Rohingya women in the camps. Like Debbie said, a lot of these women did not have the opportunity and were actually quite heavily marginalized and minoritized within their own community and outside, but they were the ones who actually carry the most burden in this movement. They are the ones that are putting themselves out there, putting their names, their face out there against and and trying to speak truth to power in a way that, you know, there could be a lot of retaliation if they were to uh, repatriate back into Myanmar. Um, A lot of these soldiers or a lot of these um, perpetrators can, can, track them down and and they're not they're in a very precarious situation within the camps to begin with but these women actually took that that you know that the challenges that they have had to deal with for the past many years in their lives um the transgenerational trauma they've had to endure all of this and twist it and change it into the power for them to stand tall against all of these um different types of injustices and the International Criminal Court case, um, even though it is not a case of genocide because they have no jurisdiction over Myanmar, um, again, women have been the forefront of this of this movement. They were the ones who actually um, continuously work with the court, and they're the ones that are actually pushing this forward. Same with the universal jurisdiction case in Argentina. Um, there are a few women who actually took this and it was actually led by them. They continue to work hard to actually hold the Myanmar military as an institution accountable. And this, I think, kind of paved the way to a lot of what we see today in terms of um, the NUG's approach to international justices. a lot of what the NUG have come out to state now have been, you know, things to do with holding the Myanmar military accountable. But because the Rohingya are the worst case scenario of what can happen in a country that inequality, in, you know, continue to infest the society and continue to be treated with neglect and 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 ignorance, the the nation just goes into chaos like this. It wreaks havoc in in all of our communities. So. Understanding that, you know, even though we have had a lot of struggles in the past, we're also trying to push forward and Rohingya have not pushed for the justice for ourselves. Um, Even though it seems self-serving most of the time, it might seem like we're just, you know, trying to trying to victimize ourselves constantly. It is actually a lot of. you know, when when we look at the current demands that the labor movement and the fem- feminist movement or, or the women rights movement or marginalized communities are asking for within Myanmar, 
a lot of those same asks have already been put out into the international community and to various nation states by Rohingya representatives. And um, understanding that, you know, other ethnic minorities have also done a lot of those works as well and put out these same asks to various different nation states, especially the economic, um, uh, uh, you know, economic aspect of it to, you know, for various nation states to cut the tie or for corporate responsibility to be taken more seriously and and for you know various different corporations to actually stop supporting the um, Myanmar military enterprises all of this have already been in the work and that's why earlier I said a lot of these work did not just start on February 1st Mamira has been hard you know hard at work on a lot of these issues and we've been working together for for a few years this is actually what has been happening but it's more more and more amplified and i'm you know as much as this is a really horrifying situation that's going on inside the country it actually gave us the opportunity to unify and understand that unless all of us actually get to live in peace and prosperity that does not you know um, rely on the the exploitation or the the displacement of, of some over the other um, or or one having the privilege at the detriment of the other we're not going to get anywhere as a country so when the NUG came out with you know the ideals that we're going to have to move forward it's not the NUG that came out with it but you know it's the it's a general call from from the rest of the country that have shaped the NUG's policy um the federalism the federal democracy that we're looking forward has to be the one that actually acknowledge not only the individual rights that everybody have, but also the collective rights, the collective, uh, uh, you know, legacy that all of us have put into as, you know, various different ethnic nationalities and, and marginalized groups have, have put in the work. These all have to be acknowledged. We have to go through a lot of, you know, domestic judicial judicial reform, as well as, you know, reform of the criminal justice system. We have to go through a truth and reconciliation process, which is going to be difficult in this country. But this is the only way we can move forward and actually not come back here again, not repeat the mistakes that we have, you know, that we have made um, in early in 2011. So all in all, what I'm trying to say is. The, the oppression that we're all uh, that that is now widespread have already been something that we talked about to the international community. Karen community have done it. Shan community have done it. Other ethnic um, nationalities have talked about it relentlessly to the international community as well as Rohingya. It all fell on deaf ears. But now. This is the epitome of what can happen because we've warned them that this could become widespread if you let the impunity continues, if you let the military continue to have this much power. Now they see it. And I really, really hope with the debate tomorrow um, at the UNGA, the international community will for once do something proactively, not just reacting to people dying, people suffering. And so I will leave it at that because ethnic groups like Rohingya and other, you know, other ethnic nationalities have done so much work already. We're tired. It's the baton is theirs now. The, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's no longer, the ball is not in our court anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin. Myra and Debbie, would you like to uh, respond to that question as well? 
Um, I'll go first. I certainly agree. And I wanted to touch on two very important things close to my heart. Um, so following up on what Sister Jasmine said earlier, if in any case, if we are successful with ICG or ICC or both, it doesn't really apply to just the Rohingya community. A lot of people tend to misunderstand that ICJ is just to save Rohingya. That is a totally wrong perception. Think about it simply. If we are successful and the Burmese military is hold, held accountable for the crimes they have committed all these years, it'll be at least so one way or the other, scare them to continue committing crimes. And this is the very first step for us to, even if we cannot abolish all, all kinds of uh, their crimes, but it is the very beginning step of, of holding them accountable so that they don't continue committing all these crimes with impunity. And we, the ethnic nationalities, we all envision an inclusive, democratic, federal union or federal country, or you, however you want to call it. But it has to be inclusive. Because it doesn't really make sense if it is not inclusive. For instance, if the Rohingya is not counting in the uh, the statistics, then what is the whole point? It is not a country. It is not the country that we're envisioned where everyone is, everyone has to be included. I mean, looking at, we all are coming from different places at one point, right? And so we've, we've here at the US for some years, we go through a different process and now we become the citizens. So has the Rohingya. How long they've been there? For how many decades, generations? And they are still not being able to recognize as the people of Burma. And that is not the country we wanted to be in anymore. And so while some people are still very conservative, and not wanting to include everyone into our inclusive uh, country of Burma, many of us also working around and rallying around each other in order to bring about change. And that is where we wanted the international community to see. You have read a lot of stuff that come out, but also there are a lot, a lot of stuff that you don't want to read or you ignore or you don't want to look at it. Probably just open your heart and mind a little bit, going beyond what, what you like to read, what you like to hear, what you like to learn, what you like to know. Perhaps you will understand a little more of what all other ethnic nationalities are going through under this brutal military regime. We are all fighting against one brutal military regime for all these years, depending on which ethnic group you talk to. If you talk to my ethnic group, it's over 70 years. But we're not there yet because we get very little support. And on top of that, the Burmese military has been very 
smart in using their divide and conquer tactic. For instance, in the past five, uh, five to eight years, they are saying, okay, we wanted to unify the country, so we're going to stop the, 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 the fighting. So they call it nationwide ceasefire agreement. They brought, they're trying, they're like, okay, we'll bring everybody together under one, uh, uh, one conversation, one table, right? But then they also handpick who can sit at the table and who cannot sit. And then on, uh, over the other side, they didn't even allow Rohingyan uh, to run for any office space. If that is the case, how far we can get to make it to the unified, to the inclusive democratic Burma? And that is why I just wanted to urge every one of us to sort of like to, to, to look broader and to know that the ethnic nationality struggle doesn't start from February 1st. It started a long time ago. It's just that right now, because the February 1st, the, the last military coup, hopefully, uh, took place, then we all come together. We support each other. Those who are rising, those who are... Um, uh, uh, staging protests. It's not going on just inside central Burma. You, if you read the news, if you look at the video, the food, uh, food, uh, 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 the clips, you're going to see pretty much in every state. Whether some of them even protest in jungle, in the refugee camp, in um, in the field, in the ocean. So that is the moment we are coming together and let's hope and let's keep this momentum together. And those who are from outside who are supporting the movement, please don't look at just central Burma or just one part of the country, but instead, please look at the country as a whole. How are we going to bring about this inclusive democratic of Burma? Thank you. Thank you, Myra. And Debbie, may, since you're the uh, last person who would be responding to this question, may I ask you to please offer some more details on specifically what what are the citizenship rights that ethnic minorities have been denied? And uh, what is it that they could gain from the federalist alternative? Um, is, it, is the language question also involved in terms of wanting to have the language of their own ethnicity as the language of instruction? What are the, some of the very specific demands that the ethnic minorities are, are posing? Well, uh, first up, um, the you know in the past twenty years there have been a whole bunch of workshops and meetings and discussions and even drafting of a federal constitution by diverse ethnic groups and uh, regrettably Rohingya were not allowed were not included at, in that process but are now are now joining that process so this whole discussion um, very comprehensive discussion and debates around how what what federalism will look like in Burma has been taking place a very for a very long time and there's even a couple of draft constitutions um, uh, where women were allowed to participate so the the problem was that the international community were just so delighted that there would be an election in the country that there'd be some kind of opening up of the economic political and uh, the political and uh, economic 
uh, reform in the country that they were not willing to consider the federalist demands of the movements, the diverse movements of the country. They had this attitude of something is better than nothing. Don't upset the military too much in case they decide to have a coup. Um, so it was kind of this game of appeasing the military while tr still trying to support the agenda reform. And that was the international community's attitude. Well, they went down this path and we still had a coup. So, um, and now the international community is, is trying to perpetuate this idea that um, this is a military junta of half a million troops and therefore the country is uh, is under, under military control domination and uh, we'll just have to go along with it and do a triage and see how we can uh, try and stabilize the situation. When uh, quite clearly military anal analysts from Burma have already pointed out we have half a million troops, only 100,000 of them are actually able to fight. The, most of them are actually busy protecting military uh, economic bases, economic installations, econ military businesses and military installations because there are a huge number of barracks installations all over the country. And so a lot of them, a lot of that half a million soldiers are actually guard, guarding they're in guard mode. They're not actually in attack mode. The ones in attack mode include some battalions who are notorious for some of the worst genocidal violence against the Rohingya. So what we're seeing is um, um, a core group of very brutal soldiers who are being stationed in different parts of the country, but they can't actually launch a nationwide a comprehensive um, offensive on every part of the country because there's just not enough of them. The military actually has been relying, over relying on airstrikes. So we've seen um, hundreds of airstrikes in Karen State, where Myra is from, um, and in the past few months. And that's the first time Karen State has been subjected to airstrikes in 10 years. Why is that happening? Because activists from the center who are on the run have fled to Karen territory to seek shelter. So the Karen themselves have been targeted with airstrikes because they are sheltering diverse activists, including Burman activists from urban areas in the center. So they are now subjected to airstrikes for the first time, hundreds of airstrikes for the first time in 10 years. So this is when we're talking about that solidarity. I don't know what else you can say that instead of Karen people saying, hey, we've got enough to deal with. We've got 70 years of, of, of uh, ongoing military attacks. And then now you're coming and making things worse for us. Go get lost. But instead of that, the Karen have actually um, instituted COVID quarantine um, within their limited resources, COVID quarantine protocols. Uh, they've been organizing aid from their already very stretched communities to make sure people who've arrived, the refugees from inside have, uh, have enough food and shelter. And so, you know, I think we, we need to understand this and we need the international community to recognize that this very powerful and ongoing resistance has denied the military junta uh, economic, political and territorial control of the country. The, the military junta is not in control of the country. And when we go from that, then we need to also um, recognize that 
what we have we are seeing is the ultimate expression of citizenship that it's people working across their differences to protect each other and to resist the military junta. And then when we go back to what the movement was demanding, we have um, very a very convoluted notion and bureaucratized notion of what amounts to citizenship in the country. Um, that your citizenship also depends on you, your being officially registered and being able to, to show up for spot checks at your your official residence. Even if you have an identity card and you've and you've moved house or moved locations without informing the authorities, that identity card which becomes the basis of your citizenship is no longer valid. There are it's not just the Rohingya who are stateless. There are millions of ethnic groups ethnic communities who were internally displaced persons for generations who haven't had who haven't had access to official recognition. But finally, the the idea that we have both a full citizenship and a second class citizenship, which was what um, the Rohingya were were subjected to, where their citizenship rights could be taken away from them, where they were not allowed to own property to own property where they were not allowed to run in elections, although they could vote in elections. So we had these very weird uh, different classes of citizenship. But in the end, the reality is that citizenship doesn't, did not grant people the type of social and economic and political security that's taken for granted, equality before the law, that's taken for granted in other countries. So we also need to redefine. It's not just about whether you have citizenship or don't have citizenship or the class of citizenship that you have. It's actually about the fundamental question of equality and of protect and the right, the right to be protected from violence. Uh, that's the fundamental issue here at play, regardless of your ethnic, gender, or, or, or uh, religious identity in the country. We have a fundamental problem of protection from violence, of security, of economic security, and and then then we need to go for, forward from there. And it's not, you know, you could be you could be a Burman man, a Buddhist Burman man, the equivalent of white Christian male in uh, in in the US, in North America, but you still may not necessarily be protected because you are actually dealing with a corrupt and oppressive system. So I think this is where this is where what we need to address. The international community has been too too tolerant for for decades of that corrupt oppressive system, and they were just willing to work to mitigate it rather than actually transform it. And this is where the movement is now at. There is a push for transformation, not mitigation, not tweaking not band-aids, and, it, and the international community needs to listen to us. Yes, uh, speaking of which, um, at, uh, uh, since all of you also mentioned United Nations, uh, the, there was an article in the New York Times this past week comparing the uh, Taliban takeover in Afghanistan 
with the military coup in Myanmar and saying that in both situations, the United Nations has not yet recognized these entities, but at the same time, it doesn't really want to do anything to help the progressive opposition or, or, or stand for anything progressive. It just is putting them on hold for now. And, uh, and that really gets back to what um, Debbie was saying and all of you were saying about the transformation, not mitigation. I appreciate that. Thank you. So the last question I have, and this one we'll have less time for because uh, we, we only have 25 more minutes uh, left and, and we want to have time for questions from the audience as well. So I will read this quickly and if each, if each of you could respond for a minute or two, I'd appreciate it. The Myanmar military regime is supported by China, Russia, and India, which have investments in Myanmar. These states sell arms to the government and see the continuation of military rule as necessary for their own immediate and strategic interests in the region. U.S. and French companies like Chevron and Total have helped the army through their investments in the oil and gas industry even while the U.S. and various European states claim to oppose the coup? What can ordinary people and activists in solidarity with the Myanmar uprising do to weaken these webs of support for the military regime? How can we reach out to and support the labor, feminist, and ethnic minority struggles? And Myra, would you like to go first in a couple of minutes for each of you? I'm trying to be as quick as I can. Um, so, well, firstly, um, I'm not going to go. I'm not to go into all the details of the question, but I just wanted to know if you really wanted to help. It doesn't cost you a whole bunch of money or time or anything. You read, educate yourself, make sure you post it, bring it forward on your Facebook, Twitter, all your social media channel. Hold the events, talk to people, talk to your government officials, everyone around you. And the second thing I just wanted to talk about is, given the Burmese military um, underlying violence, it is very clear uh, for every country across the globe, including the U.S. And here I wanted to uh, make sure all our audience in the U.S. hear about this. So it is clear that the Congress has to act and, and must act uh, in order to support the people of Burma. And we are circle working together in D.C. We're trying to work pretty hard in order to making sure that our senators and representatives are coming up with a Burma bill, which will showcase the U.S. leadership in um, alleviating an increasingly dire situation um, and hold the Burmese military accountable for their illegal seizure of power. So given the outgoing genocide against the Rohingya, the justice and accountability, and more importantly than ever, it's, under, it's not being checked properly. So the, that is why the hotel is, uh, is still in power. And so the bill that we're trying to work very hard on, it will additionally support the strategy to the U.S., uh, for the U.S. to coordinate policy on Burma uh, multilaterally. It will provide support for the civil society organizations, the democratic, uh, the, the democracy activists, and also political prisoners and independent media. And also it will authorize sanction 
laser focus against the military and the military regime's uh, economic interest while minimizing the humanitarian impact uh, on the people of Burma. And we're hoping hoping that it is introduced sometimes within this week or next week. With that, um, we will also come out with um, the call on our, our friends and colleagues ac across the country to uh, reach out to your senators, representatives, to urge them to co-sponsor this bill because we really need it to be passed. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, there's a little bit of yeah. Myra, I think you have to mute. Okay. Um, uh, there's there's a lot that people can do, and for example, um, I remember a few months ago speaking at an uh, online at an event, and this at, at this event, Frida, you reached out to me and got me involved in this other series, but also another person who was listening in um, uh, reached out to me and said. Hey, um, I, I'm going to get get some money for you, and I got a Shuttleworth flash, uh, flash grant for five thousand dollars. We were able to distribute that five thousand dollars across the country to uh, to twenty to thirty activists on the ground, so that they had phone credit to be able to. Um, contact other activists and coordinate humanitarian aid and relief. So, you know, every bit counts. But I think, as Myra says, um, you know, that uh, every, you, you, you know, and, and to quote Aung San Suu Kyi, use your liberty to promote other uh, ours. And I think um, everybody has the power to do something to support this movement, whether it's in terms of your national legislation and policies, in terms of how aid is distributed, because now we're starting to see um, countries need to start distributing aid across the border and not through the center under the control of the military junta. Um, we're, we're looking at um, economic sanctions to deny the military the funds to buy more weapons and further um, attack the people. We're, we're, we're calling for, um, and that also includes corporate accountability for companies that are providing um, revenues to the military, uh, despite the very clear message from the national movement and from other stakeholders not to give money to the military. So we can already see that. Um, and also there's direct support to our very diverse movements um, all around the country in Burma, but also um, 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 in the diaspora. And that's something that we're really excited about and refers to, I'm going to refer already to another um, uh, question from the floor from participants about what happens to the next generation. What we've been trying to do is connect diverse young people in the country with diverse youth in the diaspora, people who are refugees, who are descendants of um, different ethnic nationalities from Burma to connect them in an online dialogue and have discussions and do projects together because we we have this vision of the next generation being much better at us in terms of how we actually implement and practice and embed equality in our DNA. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, Dear Smith? 
Thank you very much. I would like to just leave it with um, follow us on Twitter, follow us online, follow us on Facebook. Um, I know that information is hard to come by when it comes to connecting with activists on the ground. But um, I think all three of us, uh, Mamera, Debbie, and a lot of people who are on Twitter or elsewhere um, who are corresponding or, or coordinating from outside of the country, we're more than happy to actually um, give you more information if you need, you know, a, a place to go donate. If you have, you know, a certain certain amount of money you would like to go somewhere, um, if you have certain things that you would like us to to you would like to help with, for example, like with the Burma bill, like if you want to coordinate with Mamera or other um, other diaspora groups, other people um, from Myanmar who have been working on this, like it's so easy to just connect with us and, and tell us, you know, what you would like to help with. And we're, we're more than happy to just take it from there. Um, the other thing is actually, you know, from out of the labor movement, um, there is a call, which I'm extremely privileged and, and happy to be able to actually have been doing this for, for some time, um, is to boycott some of these brands. Um, some of these brands are Zara and H&M. Um, a lot of these fast fashion company, we already know that they have, they are one of the most, uh, uh, one of the worst carbon, um, emitters. So they, they are already, you know, wreaking havoc on our environment, um, on our global climate, um, situation. So, it would be an incredible uh, opportunity for us to actually hold them accountable, not just for supporting the junta and creating a culture of impunity by funneling the the the, the money into you know the their pockets, but also holding them accountable for for their um, uh, horrible working conditions that they subject our you know our our labor sector or our garment sector um, into. Especially these are are women you know, the, the, the labor movement that are, that are now, um, uh, trying to organize and trying to put pressure on these different companies to actually stop funding, uh, the Myanmar military enterprise. All of these are, are majority of them are women and they're, you know, they've been suffering for years. So there are so many things that are intersecting already. And, and it's almost like kill different birds with, you know, just one stone, but you, do have to be persistent about it. If if we really, you know, if you really want to help us, please do, you know, stand in solidarity or help us um, uh, as much as you can and really, really put your energy into this. Um, so yeah, like spread the word and talk about this because Zara and H&M, um, not just, you know, not just about the, the um, it's not just about Holding they holding them accountable about the you know the the working conditions or or funding the the Myanmar military enterprise. They also have bad track records of you know uh, using uh, forced labor of Uyghur people. There's so much that we could do to hold the corporate worlds accountable for the kind of crimes committed or for enabling those you know human rights violations. So just please you know, take time to actually study a little bit more, reach out to us, and we'd be so, so happy to help you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yasmin. We have several questions, and uh, I won't be able to uh, redo all of them, but I'm going to pick three. Uh, first is from Emma H., who says, uh, do you feel as though through this tragic situation, the feminist movement in Myanmar has strengthened and improved. Are more women involved now than before? 
Go ahead, whoever wants to answer it first. I don't think I have anything else just to add from, you know, from before. I think women were invisible workers and um, a lot of their labors have been sort of, you know, invisibilized. A lot of their labor have been problematized or, or actually they've just been pushed to the edge, um, to the fringe of the society. But the, the heavy lifting is still being done by women. You know, the the continuation or, or the surviving of sexual and gender based violence is all, you know, ongoing within all ethnic communities. The thing is that the fact that the community still remain to this day as a community is actually the byproduct or, or a, a result or legacies of women who've actually held it on, you know, held it all together. But, you know, insofar as the, the, the coup, you know, involved, um, I think women have become more visible in, in this, in this realm. So it's, it's yay for us, but there is a need for us to actually rally around these women to, to help and protect them um, from all of these uh, different um, uh, oppressive climate that not just involve the, you know, the conservative community, but also the international community that continuously undermine these women voices. And if my, if my, my inter interject related to that question, for instance, are there any specific organizations that have come out of this women's organizations, women's networks, that have come out of the, the experience of the past year that we can name that uh, we that uh, we can we can try to reach out to, or or even any any entities that are new that came out as a result of the women's protests. There's actually quite a few new networks, but um, uh, some of them, because of their nature that they're located in country, um, I'm not going to um, name them because um, it gives them, it makes them more of a target, uh, which is also responding to um, Bryn Anderson's question. But what I can say is that uh, there are established networks such as the Women's League of Burma, um, which is an umbrella organization of diverse women's organizations, which have actually spoken out against impunity consistently and have expressed um, solidarity with Rohingya women. Um, uh, at least one of their leaders was assassinated. Our friend uh, was assassinated um, a few months ago in Kalemio in Sagaing region in the West. And another um, uh, um, a prominent person, uh, Tintin Aung, has been um, in detention at an interrogation center for several months already. She just has celebrated her birth. She just had her birthday in detention. So one of the things that Women's League of Burma is now doing is that it's actually um, set up uh, operations in exile in, um, on the border and is extending a lot of aid and support and protection uh, for its members. So we can 
easily reach Women's League of Burma to coordinate that. Burma News International is a alliance of 16 independent uh, grassroots media organizations, um, and they are, and they have um, moved their leadership to the border area and are able to support um, a lot of these journalists on the ground who are an important source of human rights documentation. Similarly, with the network of document human rights documenters uh, for Burma, the Assistance Association for Political Business in Burma, there's a huge number of networks of people who have been um, doing a lot of work on the ground um, who are able uh, to help or do something to help. They can't do everything, but they're doing a lot of critical work. So, um, and, and, and then all of us also have our own um, networks in country which are much more confidential. Um, so I wouldn't name in public, but we also ensure that they receive the support as much within the within the limits of our ability. Thank you. Um, any other responses to this question before I go to the next question? Okay, the next question is uh, is has the National Unity Government acknowledged the genocide of the Rohingya? By the way, is it Rohingya or Rohingya? Or are both correct? In between. <laughs> okay. So it's Rohingya. Rohingya, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so um, has the National Unity Government acknowledged the genocide of the Rohingya? Can we expect any changes with regard to their policy from before the coup? I guess I guess I'll take this one if that's okay. Yes. Um, so, you know, giving a little bit of background information for those who don't know um, or who might have not followed this this um, events the the progression of the events quite closely is that prior to the NUG or the CRPH um, coming together and and forming this this uh, government. Um, you know, the legitimate government that we're, we're hoping to be, you know, to be recognized all around the world, um, is that prior to this, the, the political climate in, in, in Myanmar is, there isn't even a mentioning of Rohingya. The word Rohingya is loaded. The word Rohingya is feared almost. And it is not used in a sense that, um, uh, to acknowledge our collective rights of you know, a group of people in existence as a as an ethnic nationality within Myanmar. So there isn't any legitimacy to it. Um, people don't utter it out of admiration or out of, you know, recognition of who we are. But they would use terms like the Bengali or Kala to actually undermine our agency and undermine our self-determination um, and basically to erase our struggles as as a collective community as a collective group of people um, since the NUG have you know formed itself and and you know actually take the leadership role um, there had been already a few steps that would con be considered very very progressive um, if we compare it back to when the NLD was ruling um, under, you know, under the shadow of the Tatmadaw, um, you know, having to compromise with them and whatnot. The 
the NUG already came out to say that, you know, Rohingya are, you know, uh, I think one of the representative of the NUG, um, Dr. Sasa, have already come out to, to say that Rohingya are our brothers and sisters. And then later on, throughout a lot of statements that the NUG released, um, recognized Rohingya, but have not actually made a mention that Rohingya are part of the ethnic nationalities, which is a key factor into how Rohingya could and would then have the political rights to participate as a collective group. Um, there is a clear distinction between Rohingya being acknowledged as individuals versus Rohingya being acknowledged as a group of people. Because when you discount, it's, it might be a little bit difficult for a lot of North American um, individualistic um you know, um, uh, what is it called? People from individualistic um, nations to actually understand why collective rights is so important because Myanmar is made up of so many diverse ethnic nationalities and each different ethnic nationalities have their own, you know, collective um, structures and, and have their own sort of history, language, you know, culture, identities that built around it, that's built around it. So without taking into consideration all of that, there is a lot of erasure when it comes to Rohingya. And erasure like this actually take away our political contributions or, or our um, societal contributions in, you know, when Myanmar actually gained independence from, from the British colonial empire. Um, also, during now, like this time, while we're fighting and, and resisting against the military to actually take down their ideologies to move forward into a federal uh, democracy or, or a more democratic future for Myanmar, it's also going to be erased if Rohingya are not completely acknowledged as an ethnic group that actually deserve to have rights and to have freedom and to have, you know, their collective group um, as as part of the ethnic nationalities, part of the hundreds of ethnic nationalities that that are um, basically spelled out um, in the Constitution or in the Charter. Now, with that, the NUG has not delivered um, in acknowledging us as ethnic group. Um, so the genocide, the struggles or our political contributions or our societal contributions are all erased. Um, so far have not been able to salvage that. Second is that they have shied away from using the, the term genocide, even though they're supportive of the um, judiciary process like the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court cases. Now, there has to be a lot more pressure that is built um, and a lot more pressure from, you know, various activists and people from outside. Um, also, activists on the ground, very, very important for them to actually take this as one of the priority, because if Rohingya can be marginalized and erased, any other ethnic communities can too. And this is going to be the entire vicious cycle of what we've had before. And it you know, it may repeat itself if we don't, you know, basically eradicate the root causes of the problems. Um, and I think that's that should be the message to the NUG is that you have the responsibility and you have the opportunity, a very, very prime opportunity to be looked at as a very legitimate form of government um, that is basically for the people of Myanmar, of all um, color, of all um, identities. And if you don't seize this opportunity, 
there's going to be a lot of question around your legitimacy and your power and your ability to rule. Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin. And since we only have four minutes left, I'm going to read the last two questions and ask uh, one of you to respond to each of them for a minute. So one is, um, why are, from Mona Fari, why are the Buddhist monks supporting the military? And then a, a question from Babel Trot: Has any solidarity work been the recent? Uh, be, has any solidarity work between the recent protests in Thailand and those in Myanmar been possible? So please take a minute to answer each, and then we're gonna. Um, uh, I'm gonna uh, conclude, and we'll end the program. Speaking from Thailand, uh, the Three Fingers Salute, uh, which the Burmese, uh, for which activists in Burma have been using as part of this movement, was used by the Thais uh, for several years previously. There is a great sense of solidarity, and that has actually caused um, a lot of fear and anxiety in the Thai government, which is why the Thai authorities recently even instructed, uh, called for um, uh, denial of shelter or uh, for members of the NUG hiding in Thailand. So um, I think, uh, and, and there's a, a Milk Tea Alliance, which is a regional uh, alliance of young people. Um, the sort of Milk Tea Alliance in Thailand, Milk Tea Alliance Myanmar have been working quite hard together. I don't wouldn't say that B B Buddhist monks are supporting the military. I would say that the military has empowered and enabled um, right-wing Buddhist monks, racist monks, to have their platforms now under this junta. So we, we have to understand that they are both in the in the Buddhist um, community and leadership, they are both um, progressive and, and, and reactionary um, monks and um, and under this military junta, it's going to be the, the, the racist violent, actually, emotionally, politically, and verbally violent, misogynist marks that um, have um, the platform. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your responses. And um, before we conclude the program, I would like to thank Debbie Stossard, Yasmin Ula, and Myra Dakaipa for their participation in this panel. I would like to thank Danny Costell from Internationalism from Below and Sean Larson from Haymarket Books and Amanda for their work, um, for, for their production work. Uh, links to the website of each panelist can be found on the live chat. So these are links to the uh, Alternative ASEAN Network, the US Campaign for Burma, Rohingya Human Rights Network. You can also view a dialogue between Debbie Stosser, Dromarilyn Ralston, US feminist abolitionist scholar, and myself on creating a global connections in the struggles against police brutality and mass incarceration, Myanmar, Iran, Myanmar, US, and Iran. There's a link to that from the Iranian Progressives blog. And if you'd like to contact um, Internationalism from Below, New Politics, or Haymarket, who have been the co-sponsors of today's panel, please go to the links that are also provided on the, uh, in the chat box. Thank you all, and we look forward to hearing from you about promoting solidarity with the Myanmar uprising. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, 
subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.